If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. And today we'll be reading from uh, Luke chapter 2. We are taking a two-week break from the Gospel of John. This week we are uh, painting a picture for Christmas. And then next Sunday we will paint a picture for the year to come. Today we will read together what we would say is the Christmas story. We'll read from verses 1 through 20. But as I was kind of unpacking the Christmas story this week, I realized that Luke chapter 2 is kind of like buying a new car. The first time you buy a new car, the first time you drive it, it's awesome, it's new, it's fresh. But after a couple of months of driving a new car, what does it become? It just becomes a car. The first time you read Luke chapter 2, it's just a story of, of the sovereignty and the love of God. But after, you know, 35, 40, 50, 60, 70 Christmases, Luke chapter 2 kind of becomes old and kind of dried up, but really, in reality, is Luke chapter 2 is a story of the best news that has ever occurred in the history of mankind. Because in Luke chapter 2, we see the sovereignty of God to arrange the story of God becoming flesh in His perfect timing to imperfect people. So if you have that, in Luke chapter 2, we will begin the Christmas story with verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone was on the way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from northern Israel in Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register with, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were, of course, they were greatly terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a feeding trough called a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Then the angel had gone away from them into heaven, and the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lie in the manger. When they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Amen. 
What is Christmas? What is Christmas? I mean, really, what is Christmas really all about? If someone were to come up to you in the parking lot directly after church today and ask you that exact question, how would you respond? But allow me to make it a little bit more difficult. If you can only answer that question, what is Christmas, with three words, what would you say? And if you, if you really think about uh, Christmas, Christmas in our culture, in our secular culture, is really um, quite weird. I mean, I think sometimes we become indoctrinated to the strangeness of Christmas in our culture. But if you actually take a step back and actually look at it, it's really pretty strange. Because to some, what Christmas is all about is really about uh, breaking and entering, okay? But it's about uh, celebrating, not Jesus, but celebrating a jolly, overweight man, old man, in a red suit that sneaks down people's chimneys and, like I said, should be arrested for breaking and entering. To some, the meaning of Christmas is gifts, but not gifts from parents or to one another, but gifts made by little people up on the North Pole in a place that is too cold for anyone to live. To some, the meaning of Christmas is about stories or movies. Oddly enough, we in our culture can let fictional stories such as kids being left home alone or kids who shoot their eyes out, okay, with a BB gun, dictate the meaning of Christmas. But maybe we do a little bit better. Maybe to some of us, the true meaning of Christmas is about family, is about getting together and opening gifts. Now, as a kid, I must confess that that's what I thought Christmas was all about, was about gifts themselves. But these days, when Amazon shows up, every day can be Christmas. Can I get a name into that one? Okay, just kidding. Um, To some of us, Christmas is about lights, is about perpetuating holiday cheer. But in reality... Christmas is about none of these. Christmas isn't about movies, it's not about Santa Claus, it's not about elves, it's not perpetuating myths about a jolly old man that eats your cookies in the middle of the night and that sneaks down your chimney. Christmas is not about Ralphie and his BB gun, it's not about being home alone, it's not about feeling good, it's not about gifts, it's not about any of that. What is Christmas really all about? The answer to this question of what is Christmas is probably more important than you might think because I believe that when we find the true meaning of Christmas, that when we see the the true meaning of Christmas, that our lives will become like the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, that when we behold what Christmas is all about, that we will see life change and that life change will cause us to praise God and to stand in awe of His power and His glory. Today we unpack the Christmas story. But this story is really not about a baby in a manger, but rather about the power and love of God. The Christmas story is not about some baby in a feeding trough in a cave By the way, he was not born in a stable. He was born in a cave. And I just obliterated every nativity scene in in the world right now. But he was not born in a stable, but born in a cave. But it's really not about a baby in a manger. 
It's about the redemptive story of mankind, of how God arranged the events of history to pursue broken and sinful people like you and me. That God would display His love by sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh so that He could die on a tree. That I could be born again. That by faith in His gift, I can be saved. That's really somewhat of Christmas itself in a nutshell. And when we behold properly Luke chapter 2, we should be like the shepherds. So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, turn in Luke chapter 2. And today, we really answer two questions. We really answer question number one of what is Christmas, and I'm going to give you three words to remember it by. And then the second question we will answer this morning is how does Christmas shape my life? We will begin in the middle of our story. I usually go very systematically, verse by verse, but instead today, I'm going to kind of jump right in the middle and then backtrack to verse 1. Notice verse 8 of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. It says, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you have your notes, then the first blank is, what is Christmas? The, what is the message of Christmas is really that the Savior came. That the Savior came, or you could say it this way, Emmanuel, or God with us. But where do I specifically get this idea of that the Savior came? Notice verse 10 in your text. The angel's message to the shepherds is good news. And that word good news there is the same Greek word, or it's the verbal form of euanglion. It's the same word that we get gospel from. And that term euanglion can mean a couple of different things. It can mean a good news report, or could mean the good news. But then notice the angels bring both good news and the good news. And who is the good news report for? It says, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So the good news that is given to the shepherds outside of a town called Bethlehem is not just for them, but it is for all the people, everyone. But then notice, what is the good news? Verse 11. I'm going to get a little TMI on you. If you notice in verse 11, there's a word F-O-R. If you ever see that word in English, the F-O-R or for, is showing an explanation. That verse 11 is explaining verse 10. So what's the explanation of the good news from verse 10? Verse 11, for today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is the good news? It is that the Savior has come. But as is pretty tradition for me on Sunday mornings, I kind of sometimes go a little bit TMI. Okay, that means too much information. If you notice that word Savior, and then you notice that phrase right after it, who is Christ the Lord, that phrase is a subordinate clause. It is describing who is Christ the Lord. It is describing who Savior is. So the Savior that is born in Bethlehem, He is Savior, but is explained through Christ the Lord. But sometimes 
we uh, interpret the Bible uh, as 21st century Americans. We interpret the Bible through the lens of having our completed Word of God, which we should. Don't get me wrong, okay? <laughs> what are you saying, Byron? Okay, that's what I'm going to get in the hallway. Okay, moving on. But, but here, what I, what I want to do is I want you to see the story of the shepherds through their eyes. Because what do they hear? That, that a baby is born in a little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. It just impress your friends with that one, okay? So it, it appears to this, these shepherds that in the town of Bethlehem that a Savior is born. Now, if you're shepherds, you hear the word Savior, and it means to them that deliver, but they're probably asking this, which, okay, what am I being delivered from? But then the subordinate clause afterwards really unfolds what that means, that Jesus is Savior, who is Christ, and who is Lord. That if you're the shepherds in the first century, when the angels say that Jesus is Christ and Lord, it's like uh, the 4th of July going off in your head. Because that term Christ there, we oftentimes think the word Christ is Jesus' last name. But it's not. It's actually a designation of Jesus. The term Christ signifies to a Jewish person that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One. Let me put it this way. The Jews in the first century, the shepherds that are in the fields that night, have been looking for the Messiah since the Garden of Eden. They have been looking for someone to deliver them from Roman oppression. They have been looking for this man named the Messiah and then an angel appears at night to shepherds in a field, and for the first time in public, the angels and God proclaim that this man named Jesus, who's born in Bethlehem, is the person that they have been looking for to, the, to a Jew, to the shepherds. The Christ, or Messiah, is the promised one in the Old Testament coming to redeem the nation and the people of Israel. The Christ, or Messiah, is coming to smash the head of the serpent, which is predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The Messiah, or Christ, is the one coming to establish His rule, His dominion, His kingdom over all. The Messiah is the one who has come to pay for the sins of the world, seen in Isaiah 52 and 53. The Messiah is the one who has come to rule on the throne of David. The Messiah, the Christ, this Jesus who is born in a little town in Bethlehem is the person that they have been waiting for for 2,500 years, and the shepherds are the first to know. This Jesus is, is Savior, who is Messiah, and who is Lord. That word Lord there is the Greek word kurios, which means master. So let me put it all together. The shepherds hear that Jesus is Savior. He is the deliverer. Because he is the Messiah and he is master over all. Now, um, 2100 years later, I'm not sure that I can really comprehend uh, the excitement and the shock value of the shepherds hearing that for the very first time in public that a little boy that was born in Bethlehem is the Messiah and who is master over all. I'm not sure I can fully comprehend that. But what is Christmas? What is the story that the Savior came and He is the Messiah and Master? 
But perhaps the most interesting part to me is verses 1 through 7, because in verses 1 through 7, we really see the setting of our story. We see God's sovereignty of how God has arranged this story. And I'm going to point out three different things on God's sovereignty. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Notice that. That a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census each to his own city. So Joseph also went up from the northern part of Israel in Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. What is Christmas? The Savior came in God's perfect timing. The Savior came in God's perfect timing. What I see here in verses 1 through 7 as I see the absolute sovereignty of God. Let me say it a different way. That God is in control. Now can I just poke there for just a second? We like to think in our world today that God is not in control. But guess what? He is. He is in control over all the events of this madness that we currently live in. Can I get an amen to that one? It's nuts out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, so but here I see three facts of God's sovereignty. Number one is the town of Bethlehem. Okay. Let me ask the question why was Jesus born in Bethlehem, in a little town called the House of Bread? It's revealed in verses 2 and 3. It's because there was a census, right? So Caesar Augustus wants to count the people in his kingdom. And so because of the census, Caesar Augustus causes a mass, mass migration to force people to their hometown. So Joseph's hometown, his family tree, comes from a little town called Bethlehem because he is from the house of David. So since David is from the town of Bethlehem and Joseph is his descendant, therefore Joseph has to travel from northern Israel to southern Israel because that is his home place. Now this, the Joseph being from the town of Bethlehem reminds me of my family. I married into the Drake Posse, okay? Um, I won't talk about that too much. Uh, but but one of the things I find interesting about that family is that much like my wife, their hometown is Pelham, Tennessee, okay, which is really close to Winchester. So Laurel's great 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 grandfather inherited acre or inherited land in Pelham, Tennessee, for fighting in the American Revolutionary War, and that land is still in Laurel's family today. So we now. I'll be honest, that is pretty amazing that that land has stayed in the family for over 200 years. But capture this idea. 
that David has not lived for over a thousand years, but Joseph and his ancestors have kept track that he's from the family tree of David and that his hometown is the town of Bethlehem and it goes back for at least 1,000 years. But there's more to the story. Because why is David from the town of Bethlehem? Why is David's hometown Bethlehem? What do we know? The story, the reason why Joseph goes to Bethlehem, goes past David, it actually goes to the book of Ruth. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth and what happens in that short little Old Testament story, that is a story of redemption. It's a beautiful story. If you have not read the, the, the book of Ruth, I would highly encourage you to do so. But what's the story? It's about a woman who is a Moabite, who is a foreigner of the nation of Israel, who marries a Jewish man. Her and her sister-in-law, Orpah, which is where we get the name Oprah, but it was misspelled. That is a true statement. Okay, moving on. So Orpah and Ruth marry men, Jewish men named Malon and Kilion. Okay, if I'm losing you, I'll pick you back up in like five seconds. Okay, so they marry a man named Malon and Kilion. Malon and Kilion are Hebrew words that mean weak and sickly. So, so imagine naming your child, this is my son weak and this is my son sickly, okay? Right? Okay, what was that mom thinking? Anyways, moving on. And no wonder that they pass away. Okay, sorry. So then you have Malon and Kilion are married to Ruth and Orpah, and then these, their husbands die, and then what do you know about this story? Then Ruth stays with her mother-in-law named Naomi, and then Naomi and Ruth move from Moab to Israel to a little town called Bethlehem. And there in the town of Bethlehem, Ruth meets a man named Boaz, who is a wealthy landowner. Boaz marries Ruth, and then together, Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. And Obed, I believe, is the grandfather of David. So think about the chain of events for 1,200 years. The reason Joseph goes from northern New Jersey to southern New Jersey. That's the size of the nation. I'll give you a topography there. The reason he goes from northern Israel to southern Israel is because his family is from the line of David, and the line of David came from hometown of Bethlehem because of Ruth and because of Boaz. All that to say this simple point. I am, every time I see something like that, I just marvel at the sovereignty and the power of God, that God would arrange the events of history very steadily to arrive at Jesus being born in a town of Bethlehem that goes all the way back for 1,200 years to a woman named Ruth and a man named Boaz. But the sovereignty of God is seen so much more than just in that. It's seen in two other aspects as well. So we see the town of Bethlehem. So why was Jesus born in the town of Bethlehem? It's because of Boaz and Ruth. But why, this is the next question, listen to this, listen to the difference. Why was, but then why must Jesus be born in the town of Bethlehem? Why must he? It's because of Micah 5.2. It says this. This is in the Old Testament. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth, for me, to be ruler in Israel, his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
So Micah 5.2 predicts what? That the ruler, a Messiah, king of Israel, will be born in a little town called Bethlehem. When was Micah 5.2 written? It was written 400 years before Jesus was even born. So think about the sovereignty of God. Think about His control and His plan over all of history. That God would arrange Ruth and Boaz to meet in a little town called Bethlehem and to be the ancestors for our Savior. But then God in His providence and His sovereignty predicts that the ruler of all of Israel and all the world will be born in a town called Bethlehem 400 years before Jesus even comes on the scene. But what does that do? What is the fact that Jesus fulfills Micah 5 too? What does it do for us and for them? It confirms that this boy, whose Old Testament name was Joshua, what we would call Jesus, that this boy named Jesus is truly who he is, that he is the ruler, that he is the Messiah, that he is master over all, proven in Boaz and Ruth, and proven that he is born in, Micah 5, born in Bethlehem and predicted in Micah 5 too. But the sovereignty of God gets even crazier. Because not only has God arranged the Old Testament to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the ruler, the king, the savior of the world, but notice who does God use to make this happen? Verse 1. Wait. God uses a heathen. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken by the governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So wait a second. So Joseph is living in northern Israel and has to go to southern Israel to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5.2 just at the right time for Mary's to give birth. And who does God use to force Joseph from northern New Jersey to southern New Jersey? He uses Caesar Augustus. So God uses a heathen to force Joseph from northern Israel to southern Israel just at the right time so that the Messiah could be born in a town of Bethlehem so that the shepherds then and we would know today that this Jesus is not just another baby in a manger but that he is the sovereign ruler over the world. God uses Caesar, Augustus, a heathen, someone who does not know Yahweh he puts an idea in his head to cause the world to go into a mass, mass migration. When I, when I look at Luke chapter 2, um, you know, when I look at Luke chapter 2 of how God uses Caesar Augustus, it only, it, it, it plants an idea in my head that this world is bigger than us. That this world is far bigger than you and I. The world is far bigger than we can ever understand. So many times we look at life through the lens of our own selfishness and our own lives, but the world and the universe is so much bigger than we could ever comprehend because here God uses a heathen to fulfill Micah 5.2. Can I, can I say it this way? That somehow in our culture today, 
That, that if God can use that, then somehow God is using COVID, he is using sickness, he is using Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Don't worry, I'm not getting political here today. But, but he's using all of these things to fulfill his purposes and his plan and his, for his glory. And so many times we get all bent up. And all of the details and, and all that stuff. And we totally forget that God is in control. He is sovereign. If God can use a heathen in Rome to force a man from northern Israel to southern Israel just at the right time for Jesus to be born in a town of Bethlehem to confirm to me and to the shepherds that this Jesus is the Savior of the world. If God can do all that then God is using our day and age. He's using all of the madness of the world to fulfill His sovereign plan and purposes. Let us not forget that. Despite what we feel, despite what the world says, despite what the media keeps pounding in our brain, despite it all, we must know that God is in control and I see it in Luke chapter 2. And... Friends, I think our lives would be a little bit easier and a little less stressful if we would turn off the news. Just saying on that one. Um, side note, rabbit trail. Uh, but I think our lives would be a little less stressful if we just realize that God is in control. That He really is fulfilling His purposes through even through the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world. And what is Christmas? Christmas is that the Savior came in perfect timing. And who did the Savior and who did the angels appear to? Notice verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And of course they were terribly frightened. But the angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, explaining verse 10 in the good news, For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is the Messiah and who is Master over all. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. What is Christmas? The Savior came in perfect timing to imperfect people. The Savior came in perfect timing to imperfect people. The greatest news in all of human history is found in verses 10 and 11. There have been centuries of good news past that. The Declaration of Independence, the Treaty of Versailles, ending verse 1, the Armistice of World War II. There have been centuries of good reports and good news, but the fact that the Savior has come and He is confirmed to be the Master and Messiah over all. The fact that that has happened is the greatest news we could have ever received. Friends, let us not let that get old. So 
So many times we've heard the Christmas story so much that it becomes like that new car. Eventually it just becomes that thing. But the greatest news in all of human history is God with us. The Savior has come. And why did he came? He came to show and to demonstrate his love for me, to die on the cross for me, that I could have eternal life through him and through faith. The Savior has come and he is Messiah and make master over all. That through him we will have a new heart in Jeremiah 33. That through him we have redemption of sin. That through him, through his blood, we now can stand innocent, declare innocent of our sin, justified before God. That through him we are children of God placed into the family of God. That through him, the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, that I am no longer a slave to sin, that through faith in Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ coming and appearing through faith in him, that no longer do we have to live as slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness placed in the family of God, given a purpose to serve for his glory and for his honor and for his fame. I find it ironic that the king of all the universe appeared and was placed in in a lowly cave in a feeding trough in a little town called Bethlehem. But who are the first people to know? It are the shepherds, these people that have been kind of forgotten of society. He didn't come to kings. He didn't come to rulers. He didn't come to perfect people. He didn't come to even the high priests. The angels appeared to shepherds. And this is what I want you to capture for today, for Christmas this week. What do the shepherds do at the very first Christmas? What do they do? Notice verse 15. Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known. So they go straight to Bethlehem and then what do do they do after the first Christmas? The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. What do the shepherds do at the first Christmas? They walk away glorifying and praising God for what? For all that they had heard and seen. They stood in awe at the greatness of God and they walked out praising Him. They stand in awe praising God for all that they had heard and seen. They praise God of how God came and confirmed all of the promises of the Old Testament into a little babe born in the town of Bethlehem, they stood in awe, praising God. And notice, notice the extent of, of their praise in Luke chapter 2. I believe it is found in verse 18. And it says, and all who heard it wondered. Wait a second. So the shepherds are going a little bit crazy with their praise and with their giving glory of God, because all who wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds, it made a profound impact that they were so glorifying and praising God that the people around them probably thought that they had lost their mind. They stood in awe, praising God. My point today is similar. That we today would be the shepherds that this Christmas that we would stand in awe, praising God.
You know, friends, I say this on a regular basis, that the gospel that the Savior came, that God with us, should not be old news. It is good news. It should be something that never really grows old. That every December 25th, and I don't, I'm not stuck on December 25th, but the day we celebrate Christmas, December 25th, let us not get wrapped up in presents and in the stress, and in cleaning our houses, and in Santa, and in elves, and in holiday cheer, and paying off the credit card after Christmas, which is stressful, I'm sure. Let us not get wrapped up all into the ancillary things of December 25th. Let us rather use December 25th as a time to realize the sovereignty and love of God, and let that cause us to stand before God in awe and praise Him and praise Him so much that people think we are weird. On Christmas Eve, this is what I would like you to do this year. I think we have been so indoctrinated by our culture of how to view Christmas a certain way that it's going to take very intentional action for us to kind of break that mindset. So this is what I'm going to ask of you to this week on Christmas Eve. With a loved one, with a family member, over Zoom, or with your wife, or with children, or you could do it even by yourself, I would encourage you to sit around the table And just think about all of the ways that you would stand before God in awe and praising Him. What I would encourage you to do is this, is to sit around the table with your family, and one person would say this, I stand in awe of God because of, I praise God because of, I praise God because of. Because friends, we have our, our judgment over Christmas has been so clouded by all of the muck and mire of this culture of making it about things that aren't even real. About Santa Claus. Sorry for children in the audience. Okay, if you're one of those parents that teach, sorry, it's not real. Okay, sorry. Um, okay, let's not make it about those things. Let's not make it about elves in the North Pole. What nonsense! Let us make it about what it is. That the Savior has come. That is God with us. He came in the form of a baby. Confirmed that He is the real deal. Because He was born in a town of Bethlehem. And God used a heathen, Caesar Augustus, to make it happen. Let us not worry about all the stuff, all the stress, all the food, where we forget about what Christmas is really all about. It's about praising God. That's it. We should be like the shepherds who are so uh, beholden to the magnitude and sovereignty and love of God that it causes us to be weird. And it's okay. We, can, we are weird. We are aliens in this land. What have you heard? What have you seen? What have you experienced in this last year that you can praise God for? If you struggle to come up with one around that dinner table, just walk outside and just look with fresh eyes to the magnitude and power of God. Look at the stars. Look at the grass. Look at how God has revealed himself through nature. 
If you struggle to find things to praise God for, then look at a picture of a loved one, of a family member, of a child. If you struggle to figure out how to praise God, then go look at your bank account. Oh, maybe not. Okay, bad example. Okay, maybe just look above your head and see the blessings of God that He has given you. Friends, we have so much to be grateful for. We have so much in this world to praise God for. Let us not be short-sighted. Let us not focus on all the problems in the world that we forgo the sovereignty and grace of God. But in an effort to practice what I preach, I came up with a list of all the things, maybe not all of them, but a list of things that I stand in awe of and praise God for. I praise God for how He has changed my life. That now, through the blood of Christ, I am a new creation. And now I am considered His child, a co-heir with Christ, having His inseparable love, and promise that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to His purpose. I praise God for blessing me with a wonderful family. I bless God for that I can know and experience and be assured of His endless, inseparable love. I stand in awe for how He has resurrected this church from the ashes and given us life. I stand in awe for Him being sovereign and in control even in the midst of all of my fear. I praise God for working in my family and in my children. I stand in awe knowing that the final victory is near. (laughs) I stand in awe, knowing who I am in Christ, that I am a new creation, that I have access to the throne of grace. I stand in awe at all the financial, emotional, and spiritual blessings He has given me. I praise God for my home, for cars, for His love and peace and safety, and for my health and for giving me a purpose. I praise God that a Savior came and He saved a wretch like me. I stand in awe and I praise God that He is in control in a time that is out of control. I praise God that He reduces rulers to nothing and He holds in His hand the oceans of the world. I stand in awe at His love, at His greatness, at His mercy, at His forgiveness, at His salvation, at His redemption, and I stand in awe that I am promised heaven, which is near. What do you have to praise God for? Christmas Eve, four days from now, do not get distracted. Take time and just be like the shepherds. Just take a moment, carve it out in the midst of the madness of cleaning your house and just ask the question, what do I have to praise God for? And if you run out of things, then just walk outside or read your Bible. Because, friends, I I want us at Calvary Bible Church to go beyond being smart people who know our Bible. I want us at Calvary Bible Church to be people who praise God and are considered weird because we do it so much. I want us at Calvary Bible Church to take what we learn 
the faith in our heart and the work of the Holy Spirit in converting us to be people that stand in awe of the glory and the majesty and the grace of God. That we would praise God for what we have been given, praising for Him also for who He is, praising God that He has aligned the events of history to arrive perfectly at a town of Bethlehem, praising God that He will align the future according to His will and purposes, praising God that our Savior, who is the Messiah and Master over all, has come to save people like you and me. I want us, as Calvary Bible Church, to be people who praise the Lord, who stand in His awe and His magnificence, who humble ourselves before His sovereignty and His love and His control over all things, praising Him in this Christmas season and far beyond. Let us be the shepherds, standing in awe of who He is and what He has done. December 25th is not a holiday for Santa Claus. It is a holiday to praise the Lord for all His grace and all He has done. So let us go and let us stand in awe of Him. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You just for my friends that are here. Uh, Lord, I forgot to share, but Lord, I pray that anyone who does not know You as Savior, who has not uh, trusted You as their Redeemer, Lord, I pray that they would believe in you as their Savior and that you would come to them and that you would redeem them. And Lord, I just, uh, I, I just pray for today and for this week. Lord, I pray that we would not get so distracted by all the things in the world that we have to do, our bucket list of things that grow day by day. But Lord, that we would remember why we celebrate Christmas, that we would leave Christ in Christmas itself. And Lord, that we would be people that are awed and how much we actually stand in awe of God and praise Him. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for all those that are here. I pray that we would glorify you in our lives. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That we would put our lives on a lampstand and that we show the gospel to all those around us through our love, through our deed, and through our words. Lord, I pray that we would be bold in this season. And Lord, give us a love for one another and a thank you for your grace because Lord, we all fall short. We all fall short. And Lord, thank you that you have given us grace that forgives us our sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, I just pray that as we go, I pray that we would remain safe. Pray for all those that are tuning in online, uh, that you would give them uh, love and grace. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.